0: On today's episode expert opinions on pht treatment welcome to the podcast helping you overcome your proximal hamstring tendinopathy this podcast is designed to help you understand this condition learn the most effective evidence-based treatments and of course bust the widespread misconceptions my name is brodie sharp i'm an online physiotherapist releasing a, a paper in a while and I've got a good one that came out last year. It is in the Journal of Physical Therapy and Sport. The title of the paper is Proximal Handstring Tendinopathy Expert Physiotherapist Perspectives on Diagnosis Management and Prevention. The uh, leading author is Anthony Nasser. Uh, there's a, a fair few others. There's five other authors um, to which the ones I recognize, Tanya, Pizzari, Bill, Vincenzo, and Ebony Rio, all Australians, um, which is nice. I'm pretty sure this would be an Australian paper and um, really well-versed in tendinopathy management, not just specific to, to PHT, but just, um, yeah, world leaders in the development, understanding, management prevention of tendinopathies. And so, yeah, I thought I would do an episode on this because this episode particularly dives into a whole bunch of subjects. It essentially um, interviewed a whole bunch of experts on PHT management and then based on those interviews, categorized things in terms of um, symptoms, in terms of location, diagnosis, treatment, prevention, those sorts of things. And we'll dive into all of those particular Subtopics, I guess you could say. Um, so I've got the paper in front of me and the objective that they said was to explore and summarize expert physiotherapist perceptions on their assessment, management and prevention of PHT. Um, the methods, so they conducted a semi-structured interview with expert physiotherapists and then they analyzed systematically and organized them into categories and subcategories according to the study aims. And so um, it says it in the introduction, which I'll talk about now. So the introduction said that the research on the prevalence is limited. However, PHT has been consistently identified in sports involving such sports as Australian rules, football, tennis, track and field, as well as the sedentary population. Pain is frequently aggravated by activities such as hill running and sitting. Um, But Recent systematic review identified multiple potential interventions, including exercise, corticosteroid injection, platelet-rich plasma injections, shockwave, and surgery. Um, But this review... So they're referring to a 2020 review, and they said that this review uh, reported a lack of unbiased estimates of strong treatment effects to guide treatment selection. So amongst all of those options exercise, corticosteroid injection, PRPs, shockwave therapy, surgery. Um, There's not a lot of research or high quality evidence to point people in the right direction to say this is the most beneficial treatment. It's not that these treatment options aren't effective or ineffective. It's hard hard to know just because there isn't any research done on this specific condition. And so there's lack of guidance, I guess, just because of the lack of research. And so with no high quality evidence, it's left to ask the clinicians. Clinicians are left um, with the lack of direction to guide management. Therefore, expert opinions can be used. And so that's why this paper has recognized that gap in emerging evidence. We don't have a paper to point to, to to help health professionals with the management and treatment of this condition. So, let's start conducting interviews with leading experts. I don't think I put it in my notes, but the a leading expert, I think they interviewed 14 of them and they had to have at least 10 years experience, had to have at least um, a double degree, like a doctorate um, or a master's and need to be treating in this condition for more than 10 years. And so, uh, yeah, interviewed a whole bunch of experts in the aim to try and come up with best Guidelines for the management treatment of this condition. So, I have all these subcategories. I have the onset of pain, the location of pain, aggravating kind of tests that therapists might do, and you could probably do at home. Um, I've got contributing factors, getting scans, differential diagnosis, and then we'll dive into, say, treatment, passive treatments, prevention, and some conclusions at the end. But Let's start with the onset of pain. And so this is just, like I said, interviewing experts and getting their particular take on what they have seen in their past. So all experts reported that the onset of PHT was insidious, meaning that there was no particular one event um, and associated with an increase in mechanical load through the proximal hamstring tendon. So there's been something in the history of a person developing PHT, which is um, pointed in the right direction for making sense. senses, they say, um, an increase in mechanical load to that tendon. So that might be increasing running speed, increasing exercise intensity, doing more stretching, doing more sitting, um, something that increases the load beyond its capacity. The location of the pain, all experts that were interviewed reported that patients described pain at the proximal hamstring insertion at the ischial tuberosity, so high up on the sitting bone. And most experts agreed that the pain did not shift or spread. A shift or spread in pain was often expressed to indicate a differential diagnosis or a comorbidity. So, um, most of the experts said that, uh, you know, the, the pain was around there. Most would say that the pain stays at the sitting bone. But if there is some wide wider spread of symptoms, so if it's traveling further down the leg, into the hamstring belly, further up into the glute, up into the back, or, you know, somewhere more widespread, it may signify that there is something else, either um, not PHT and another diagnosis, or it could be PHT, and have a comorbidity, so something else concurrently going on at the same time. Interviewing these people, four experts reported that the symptoms primarily occurred at the hamstring insertion, although pain did not did at times spread down the hamstring, and but not past the knee. So I've had most experts say that it stays localized. I've had some other experts say that sometimes, like yes, primarily it is in the sitting bone, but sometimes pain can travel down into the hamstring, um, but it, it doesn't pass the knee. If it passed the knee, then it's something else. They then were asked about things like um, provocation tests or diagnostic tests, and they said that the provocation activities included, uh, included activities such as lunging, running up hills, hamstring stretching, or activities that placed compressive loads through the proximal hamstring tendon unit, such as sitting. So all of these things would be aggravating factors for someone with PHT, or a person who came in with PHT might have one of these factors. So things that load up the hamstring. Um, Tests were considered positive if localized pain at the ischial tuberosity, so at the sitting bone was reported and increased with tasks that placed greater loads on the hamstring tendon. So this is what a lot of, Therapists would do if they suspect a particular tendon is involved, they would do a test that you know mildly requires that tendon and see what symptoms are like, and then they'll do another test which requires or demands more of that tendon and see what symptoms are like. And then, if warranted or if justified, they'll try something that's quite higher again in load or demand and then see if as you Ask more of the de- of the tendon. Does symptoms increase more and more? And if it does, then it might increase your suspicions that it is that tendon helps you confirm your diagnosis. So this is kind of what the the experts were were saying when they were interviewed. Um, and so they the paper said that experts commonly used a single leg RDL, a single leg Romanian deadlift. They did arabesque, which is very similar to a single leg deadlift, just more with a straight leg. Uh, they did a single leg, a single leg bridge test at 90 degrees hip flexion. So they had pretty much like a, a single leg bridge just with the knee bent. Um, they did a... Um, but we, uh, I should probably say with the, the hip flexed at 90 degrees, so their foot's probably up on something. They probably pushed down onto a chair, like when their back is laying against the floor with their hip and knee bent at 90 degrees up onto a chair, and then they're pushing their heel down into the chair and coming up into a single leg bridge. They also did isometric knee flexion at 90 degrees of hip flexion. So if someone's, say, sitting and their legs are dangling off the edge, so let's just say they're sitting on a treatment table with their legs dangling off, and then they're asked to you know dig their heel under the, the table, with someone applying resistance. Um, and they also did like a bent knee stretch, which is just like stretching the tendon to see if that produced anything. So these were the tests that demand more of the tendon and just seeing if it produces symptoms. And if it does produ- produce symptoms, it might suspect that it is PHT. There was a lack of consistency, I guess, with palpation. So palpation is just um, touching, feeling, feeling, for around the area because some experts believed that it was important to be able to produce the patient's symptoms on palpation. So poking around and feeling through the, the tendon as it attaches onto the sitting bone, some believed that was helpful in the diagnosis of PHT, whereas other experts were thought that, you know, palpation was neither of any use or had limited diagnostic value. Um, so, that was kind of hit or miss depending on the, the expert that they asked. Um, I suppose it depends on the pathology. I don't know. This is just me going off on a whim, but when you look at a hamstring tendon and you see that it's quite thick, it's like the size of like an Achilles and Achilles is quite thick. But when you have a a, a tendinopathy, it's not the entire tendon that's sore. It's not the entire tendon that has the pathology. It's only a very small part of that tendon. And it depends where in that tendon um, that might, well, it will produce pain on like demanding tests. But then when you touch it, I guess it depends where that tendon has its pathology would mean whether it's sore or not when you touch it. Because it could be directly in the center of a tendon. It could be around the outer skirts. It could be Uh, further away from the the surface of the skin. So I I guess that's probably why there's such discrepancy in opinions when it comes to that. Uh, Nonetheless, tests for contributing factors was also a a subcategory within this paper. So not only are you honing in on the hamstring and saying, yes, we believe this is a pathology of the hamstring tendon, You're also looking elsewhere to see, okay, well, is there any other weakness, stiffness, um, you know, just discrepancies that might be relevant in the management and treatment of this pathology. So they listed off some tests for contributing factors. They looked at hip extension strength, which is just testing out the strength of your glutes, um, your glute max, looking at knee flexion strength. So just seeing overall just like strength of the hamstring calf endurance and capacity tests around the calf complex was was measured range of movement of the hip knee ankle and the big toe joint were also things that they would look at but then they'd also look at performance uh, analytics they wanted to look at specifically for runners um, or any other sports people that require running uh, just looking at how they move looking at what sort of characteristics they have in their their gait movement just to see if there's any things that might be a contributing factor. So when looking at sporting athletes and runners, they commonly observed um, features that were, say, overstriding or they're looking for characteristics that fit overstriding, a low cadence, um, sitting low or like runners who kind of crouch when they run and excessive anterior pelvic tilt, which is just people who have a really Big arch in their lower back and their hips kind of a uh, tilted forward. So if someone's moving in that particular um, posture, it could put a little bit more strain on the hamstring tendon. Therefore, maybe correcting it, maybe increasing the cadence, changing their posture, those sorts of things could help. It would would maybe help their return to sport. So they did mention that in there um, scans. So the paper mentioned that experts rarely used imaging to diagnose PHT. They rarely used it as a, as a mode or something that was useful, um, preferring to use information gained in the patient interview and physical examination. Experts usually referred for imaging if they believed a different condition was masquerading as a tendinopathy or when the condition was non-responsive to management. So this is very important. And I think I've discussed similar... Opinions or similar information on the podcast before. Most therapists will use their tests, um, do their strength tests, do their loading tests, ask about the history of the symptoms, ask what aggravates it, what eases it, ask about the time this came on, um, what you were doing, was there a change in training, was there a change in sitting, was there a change in anything else, and use all of that information gathered to come up with. Uh, a pretty solid diagnosis of pht if all of this just lines up and all says pht and doesn't say anything else you don't need to get a scan it's all pretty relevant um and if someone's if it's not really fitting the pattern if you do all these tests and you say well it does look like pht but there's all a whole bunch of other things that might um suggest something otherwise That's when the therapist might use their clinical opinion or clinical justification say, let's treat it like a PHT because most of your signs and symptoms are pointing to that. So let's start treating it as such and see how you respond. If you respond favorably, then let's just continue treating it like a PHT. But if we start treating it like a PHT and it doesn't get better, maybe it's not PHT. And maybe we need to start looking at other investigations and consider something else, broad our horizons a little bit. And then if it's masquerading as a tendonopathy but it's actually something else, then maybe some scans might be effective. Um, if something is um, showing signs that it's something more serious, maybe like a hip, deep hip stress fracture or something, they might send you for scans straight away and not go through the trial and error of treating it like a PHT initially. Um, But then again, if you treat it like a PHT initially and you're non-responsive to treatment, might be warranted for scans. And so um, it says that all the experts kind of had that same opinion. And I know it's probably depending on the amount of education that you got delivered during the diagnosis of PHT, you might have some... Uncertainties, and you might feel the need to get a scan. Just keep in mind that it's probably not high on a therapist priority list if you're if you're fitting um, the signs of PHD and everything's pointing to that particular diagnosis. They did mention differential diagnosis. Um, they did mention the cause or, or the irritation or the pain originating from the sciatic nerve or the nerve sheath as a potential. For a, a different diagnosis, this pathology was reported to occur either concurrently with PHT or as a separate entity, um, and so that might mean if there is the sciatic nerve or the nerve sheath that is playing a role, either the complete role or um, you know subsequent role of PHT. We're usually talking about widespread distribution of symptoms. Um, particularly into the buttock, particularly down into the thigh, sometimes even past the knee and further down the leg. But um, this deferential diagnosis could be identified by doing certain nerve tests. Uh, we call a slump test or a straight leg raise test for diagnosis and um, potentially could see if there is some involvement of the sciatic nerve or nerve sheath. And so, the experts that were interviewed did mention that this is probably a common differential diagnosis if it's not just pht so the nerve can be concurrent with pht so you could have both or you could just have purely pht without psych nerve or you could just have psych nerve without pht so it's up to the therapist to try and work out exactly the structures that are involved okay that's enough in terms of the understanding, the tests, the scans, and let's have a talk about treatment. Okay, the first subcategory was management of PHT. And the paper said, um, the primary management options utilized were education and exercise. Passive interventions, which are usually just like um, hands-on therapy In most cases, Um, so passive interventions were included by some experts, but only as an adjunct to education and exercise. So education exercise was always included, and sometimes some therapists might do some passive interventions. Tendonopathy specific pain education with the key message of being that pain does not always mean harm, and pain twenty four hours after activity could be used to judge how well the tendon had tolerated an activity. That sounds very familiar because we've talked about that several times on this podcast, Uh, essentially talking about education, honing in on sometimes pain and symptoms and making sure that the patient understands that if the tendon is a bit sore, doesn't necessarily mean harm, doesn't necessarily mean um, that it's doing more damage or that you should avoid it. What it does mean is that it's something to observe and then just see how it responds within 24 hours. Say a lot of people with PHT have a fear of bending, picking something up off the floor, because when they stretch that tendon, it causes pain. But then once you stand up again, the pain goes away. Everything drops back down to baseline. There's no ongoing irritation. That's usually fine. You can continue doing that. If you pick something up off the floor, it goes away completely, and you go by the rest of your day still with baseline symptoms, continue doing that. If you pick something up off the floor a hundred times, and then later on in the day it's a bit achy, it's a bit sore. The next day it's a little bit achy above baseline. Then maybe that was too much. So it's just um, education about pain management and understanding your symptoms accurately interpreting your symptoms, which is really crucial for the management of PHT. A bit of reassurance, I guess, for for the most part. Um, But then the second part, um, aside from education, was exercise. And so this paper said that exercises were progressed from low load exercises in positions with minimal hip flexion, such as a long lever bridge or a supine plank, and progressed to positions of high load exercises depending on factors such as the pain, the individual's pain response to that exercise. Exercises were advanced as early as tolerated, which was determined primarily by pain responses, i.e. the pain response 24 hours after exercise. So again, not much different to what we've talked about in the past. They have as soon as able progressed to heavier loaded exercises and they've progressed um, based on symptoms because some clients that I see, they might not even need to start with the low loaded exercises with the long lever bridges. They might jump straight into something that's a lot heavier, something like a a nautic hip hinge or a deadlift or a lunge or a step up. They might jump straight into those just because they can tolerate those things and we work out if they can tolerate them by their pain response. The paper mentions that rehabilitation was progressed by either, well, they've got four options here, by increasing the load, increasing the speed of contraction, so how fast you're doing that exercise, hamstring exercises with increased ranges of hip flexion, and increasing complexity. So the complexity might be challenging their balance, challenging their coordination, um, something that's a little bit more, I guess, return to sport specific, but um, good to know. They're either increasing the load, speed, or compression of the tendon. Um, They mentioned that some examples of these exercises included step-ups, split squats, stairs, and a slow sled push. So um, slow sled push would be great. It's kind of like really tough uphill walking. Uh, which can be provocative for some people, which just means they're not ready for that particular level yet. But if your goal is to return to running, return to sport, return to, you know, um, I guess stronger gym exercises, then a slow sled push will eventually be in your rehab ladder. So, yep, that whole management side of things, nothing too new from the podcast, but good and reassuring that um, the experts are agreeing with what has already been said. There's nothing revolutionary changed about the, the opinions and the management of PHT. Um, they had a subject on passive treatment. And so, like I said, that's like the hands-on manual therapy, shockwave injections, those sorts of things. Anything essentially that isn't exercise-based, I think might be a good way of um, ruling out what's what. But they said... Passive interventions such as manual therapy and injection therapy was not considered integral in any expert physiotherapist, by any expert physiotherapist. Most experts used massage therapy as an adjunct in the early stages as they found it would assist in settling down the tendon when it was, a react- when it was in a reactive state. So if someone comes in really irritable, really high levels of pain, um, this is what we call like an acute reaction, some therapists found justification for doing some massage just to settle down the pain, um, just to try and calm down those the pain severity, so that they're able to, I guess, get by life with a little bit more comfort. And like they said, it was always an adjunct, so that education and exercise was always an integral part. But you know, plus or minus manual therapy in the early days, um, just to help settle things down, make things more comfortable. They continue. Manual therapy was also used as an adjunct to target associated physical impairments. So they used manual therapy, soft tissue massage, to address, let's just say, mobility work. Because as we said above, they looked at hip range of movement, knee range of movement, ankle range of movement, and like movement of the big toe. And they looked at other other stuff in terms of flexibility and mobility. But if any of those things came back. Um, as an important finding, let's say they were really uh, rigid or really stiff through their hip and that might have been contributing to the pathology, then they would do manual therapy to address that associated physical impairment. So again, that that justification was there. One expert mentioned that sometimes utilizing shockwave therapy alongside a loading program, other expert physiotherapists didn't use any passive management strategies. More invasive management, including injection therapies and surgery, was not recommended. No expert physiotherapist referred patients for platelet-rich plasma injections or corticosteroid injections. So they're essentially staying away from the the injections. They they're staying away from surgery. Um kind of that serious stuff. And I've talked about it a bit on the podcast before. It doesn't seem to be that effective. Um, the Shockwave, I think, is more of a picky battle. Some people might respond really well to shockwave, others won't, and there are some criteria about what would make you a good responder to shockwave therapy. I've got um, Benoit Matthew in the earlier episodes to kind of highlight to you what the what that criteria is. But good that the, the experts are kind of on the same boat with that. Prevention. Um, so we've talked about the management, mainly hovering around education and exercise, which is great because this is what this podcast is about. Um, Passive treatment, yes, can be used, but exercise and education need to be in the treatment. It can't just be passive treatment. And it seems like the passive treatment only is justified when it's in the early stages, pain's a little bit higher, and there's other co- associated physical impairments um, to justify, you know, some release work and that sort of stuff um, can be used. When it comes to prevention, the paper says that a rationale for ongoing management is reiterated due to a high potential for recurrence. In particular, the importance of strength in the hamstring and kinetic chain was echoed across respondents, as well as addressing areas that were vulnerable to atrophy, such as deficits, associated with past injuries so essentially what that means is they're highlighting the importance of keeping up your strength keeping up your um, the rehab that you have been doing so that the strength is maintained as once you've overcome pht you've maintained the strength of the hamstring you've maintained the strength of the entire leg and so that just helps build up the capacity, help maintain the capacity to high range. So that it reduces the risk of uh, the PhD flaring up in the future. Because a lot of people, they do their rehab, they feel better, they get pain-free, they return to sport, they continue to do their sport and drop off their their exercises. Very, very common um, just because they, you know, the motivation isn't there. The, the perceived level of importance isn't there. And phd comes back so in terms of the prevention the um they've just reiterated that the the potential of recurrence and the the importance of maintaining strength and the importance of um, following up with any deficits that might be occurring with other past injuries so if you had an ankle injury if you had a hip injury or a knee injury making sure that that's all taken care of and there's no other compensations and things that might lead to PhD popping up in the future. Okay, the conclusion of this paper. They say expert physiotherapists diagnose PhD using a combination of findings, including patient interviews and pain provocation tests, implying no single test is adequate. So they can't find one test that says, let's do this. You have PhD, you don't have PhD. They use a combination of a bunch of things. There was consensus that progressively loading the tendon to check the pain response was useful diagnosis was <clears throat> useful for the diagnosis, whereas views on the value of palpation differed. So they used loading tests to kind of determine if the tendons involved, but palpation, so touching the tendon, yeah, varied from <clears throat> in opinion. Education to improve patient understanding of pain and tendon load. To allow self monitoring and progression combined with a progressive rehab program were the cornerstones of management and prevention and and for the prevention of recurrence. So, again, they used education, so the understanding of pain, the understanding of uh, the importance of loading the tendon, allowing the person to interpret those symptoms, progress, um, and knowing how to progress with a progressive rehab program. All of those were just the key cornerstones to the management of PHT. And they said that passive management strategies were perceived to be of little benefit. Um, so that's the paper. That's what they've come up with. I think this is a very, very recent paper. And to know that these experts are on the same wavelength as, you know, the what has been taught on the podcast so far is reassuring. It knows that, you know, this management's still on the right track. Yes, we could have more data. We could have more randomized controlled trials, blinded trials, just more attention being drawn to PHT in the research space. Um, Unfortunately, it's not there yet. Um, But I guess this helps solidify our current understanding. And hopefully you've at least taken a couple of tips away from today's episode and today's paper Um, i'll leave the link to the paper in the show notes along with everything else if you need a a 20 minute injury chat that's that link is there in every episode Um, we can jump on a call and have a chat about your management and see um, if you're on the right track if there's anything that needs to be included um, or if you'd like something that's a lot more tailored a lot more robust we can have a talk about online physio options for you so that's it for today thank you for listening good luck with your rehab over the next two weeks and we'll catch you next time Thanks once again for listening and taking control of your rehab. If you are a runner and love learning through the podcast format, then go ahead and check out the Run Smarter podcast hosted by me. I'll include the link along with all the other links mentioned today in the show notes. So open up your device, click on the show description, and all the links will be there waiting for you. Congratulations on paving your way forward towards an empowering, pain-free future. And remember, knowledge is power.